morning. Okay, you know, all attention towards the front here, okay? <laughs> hey, it's good to see everybody this morning, and I think we're going to have a nice, actually cool day. Isn't that great? Uh, so it's going to be a great day that the Lord is going to give to us. But more than what makes it even more special is we've come together to worship Him. That's what our purpose is here today is to, to worship Him and to, to honor Him. And uh, we're just glad to see everybody here to, today. We'd also like to welcome any visitors that, that might be here today. And uh, we're just glad you came to be with us today. Uh, right now we're going through kind of a transition, not a transition time, but kind of a weird time because uh, our pastor is out. He's, uh, he has been ill, uh, and, uh, but he's hoping to be back in several weeks. He's chomping at the bits, believe me, but uh, he's not going to come back too soon. That's the one thing we don't want. But today we're going to have uh, Bob Ambrosius is going to come. Uh, Bob's, uh, Bob and Judy are members here, and they're missionaries to the Philippines. And we're just glad that they hang around when they're home, that they hang around with us. We're just, we're just so thankful for that. And so Bob's going to come, and he's going to share the word with us uh, this morning. Uh, but if you're visiting here with us today... Um, we're just uh, glad you're here, and also if if you're uh, if you're here and you're just away from your church, well then we're glad you came to be with us. If you're looking for a church home, we have an information booth right out here in the, the lobby, and uh, I think Ed Sarno is uh, uh, not Ed Sarno, excuse me, Ed <laughs> Ed DeArman, uh is is manning that one. No, he's not there. He is, but he's he's the man who knows everything. So uh, we just uh, uh, whoever it is out there will give you all the information that you need. Uh, to get started, and we'll be glad to uh, answer any questions that you have. Um, today, I thought we would just start off with a, a passage of Scripture before we get into our song service, and, um, and I just thought we'd just stand and we would just recite it together. It's out of Psalm 98, so let's all stand, and uh, let's just recite this together. Let's, 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 let's read this together. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. That's all. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> I was expecting one more. Sorry about that. But anyway, uh, let's all sing together. Uh, we're going to sing just some... Uh, some songs, some uh, maybe older hymns today, and I hope that you'll enjoy doing that. Glorious is thy name, O Lord. Let's sing together.
Exalted high above all. His name is worthy to be praised. Let's lift his name up.
We sing these songs with it. Address who the Lord really is. All the songs today, if you realize that, is, or if you paid attention to that, was talking about how great our Savior is. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a Savior. And he goes in on that last song, I lift my, your name, your holy name, Jehovah God, Elohim. The great I am, the risen Lamb, is my comforter and my king. And that's who we've come to worship today. I want you to listen to the words of the choir as they sing a medley of numbers. Some of them will, you'll, you'll recognize. And um, just listen to them, and let's just worship the Lord together.
Let's all bow together. This choir comes down. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for who you are. God, we come together today because we know who we are. Father, we know that we are not worthy to be in your presence. Lord, we are not worthy to be a part of your family. Lord, we are not worthy to be called your children. Lord, we are not worthy to be able to call you Father. Father, we know that we are not worthy of the great sacrifice that you have made for us. God, knowing as we have sung, you're the king of all nature, the king of all nations, son of God and the son of man. Lord, you are great. You are awesome and you're almighty. And God, we know that we are so small. So God, we praise you this morning as we come together as a group of believers to worship you, to honor you, to glorify your glorious name, to lift your name up above every name under heaven and earth. So Lord, we thank you that we've had this time to express ourselves in song, be able to open our hearts to you, Lord, because we know that more than listening to our words or listening to our songs, Lord, you're reading our hearts. Father, you know what's in our minds. God, we know you know that we love you. And Father, in our just small way, Lord, we want to express to you how much we love you. So God, we just thank you that we've had this time together, that you've allowed us to have this time together. And Father, as we continue on in our worship time, Father, I want to pray for Bob as he brings the message to us this morning. Father, I know you've laid something on his heart special. Lord, he will be opening up the word. And Lord, the, your word is special and it's powerful. And Lord, I just pray that you would uh, speak to our hearts, Father. I just pray that your spirit this morning will open every heart, every mind, every ear, God, that we would listen and we would know that you are God. Be with us now during the rest of this time. These things we pray in your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We don't have one like this in the Philippines. You bet. I just want to see how high it goes. <laughs> it's a privilege to be able to minister here this morning with you. Judy and I have been home probably uh, like it was a furlough. This time longer than we have in other, other times. I think it was 1917, it was January that I spoke here before. <laughs> it was, it was 19, uh, 2017. 
Yeah, it was just before my birthday. Now it's after my birthday. Give me a break. I'm 81. <laughs> well, we have good news from the Philippines. Uh, the, the, the translation of the Bible in Kalingui will be coming off the press in uh, the second or third week of March. So uh, Judy and I can now make a, a date for when we will actually return to the Philippines, which we'll, we're talking about the 11th or 12th of, of, uh, of March. But we're so thankful for that. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, being back in the Philippines and having the dedication of the, new t the whole Bible in the Kalangwia language. Uh, it, it so happens that this will coincide with conference, so we'll have conference and the dedication at the same time. And we'll have a, uh, a large group of people and we'll uh, also meet right there at, at the church that you folks helped to uh, uh, finance. And uh, it, that, that church has been an incredible blessing to our folks there. Um, I, you remember when I spoke on three years ago? So I can speak same thing today, right? <laughs> I'm not going to do that. And I didn't have a PowerPoint then, and I don't have a PowerPoint now. But uh, I'd like you to turn your Bibles to the third chapter of Romans. And we see a, there's a, a great clock back there. Uh, we don't have one of those in the Philippines. Um, we could probably put one in that church because we do have electricity there. But uh, it, wouldn't, it would be useless anyway. Because <laughs> uh, in the Philippines, we're not time-oriented. We're event-oriented. It's not when it happens, it's just if it happens. And so uh, if folks come to church, uh, now at our church at, at the center, we do uh, uh, have more time orientation. And folks, we start and end pretty much at, at, uh, at 12 o'clock. All right, end at 12 o'clock, before 12 o'clock. But I'd like you to turn with me to Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 26. And then keep your finger there because we're going to refer back to that several times. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no difference, no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. I need water. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we recognize our dependence upon you to 
open your word and, and to grasp the meaning of what the writers have intended for us to understand and for what the writers have un intended for us to apply in our daily lives and in our daily experience. And Lord, we pray that you would open our minds, open our hearts, give me the words to speak. And Lord, we just recognize our dependence upon you to not only speak the words, but also to understand them and to appropriate them in our life and experience and our witness for you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is not an easy passage to read and immediately grasp. Wow, we can even have a cup holder. Cool. You can get it in there. We can't get Oh, yeah. But I believe that it is very freeing when we really understand what Paul is describing here. But first we need to understand the problem for which he is addressing a solution. When we experience certain symptoms and sickness, it's important to go to the doctor and get a proper diagnosis, which in turn leads to, hopefully, a correct, correct remedy. Paul starts the book of Romans by giving us a diagnosis of, diagnosis of the human condition. He contrasts the righteousness of God with the unrighteousness of human beings. In looking at the human condition, Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. In Romans 8, 1, 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul is speaking here in the present tense that God's wrath is revealed. And in subsequent verses, he talks about the fact that God is giving people over to their sinful desires as if God was saying, just go ahead now, do what you want. There is a further demonstration of God's judgment spoken of in Romans chapter 1, verse 27, where it says, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error, referring to the fact that sin is like poison and carries its own negative consequences. And we all have families in which we've those in our family have experienced exactly this. The choices that they have made in their lives have carried the consequences by those choices. Now he summarizes the human condition in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 to 12, that there are none righteous, none who understand, none who seek for God, all have turned aside, all have become useless, None who do good, not even one. So Paul has done an effective job in identifying the problem so we can understand the necessity of the remedy. What we read in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 26, is the foundation for the remedy 
and what the remedy involves. I like those words, but now. Regardless of how depressing the diagnosis seems, there is a remedy to the solution. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest by witnessing, by wit being witnessed by the law and the prophets. There is now, there is none righteous, but now a righteousness from God is being made known. Not a righteousness that can be produced by human efforts. It is a righteousness of another source, from another source. It is a righteousness that comes from God. So the problem that needs to be addressed is within the Godhead. It's not within us. We can't solve it. Only God can. It is summed up in some seemingly contradictory statements. In chapter 3, 23 and 24, all have sinned and are being justified. Paul describes us among those who have, of the all who have sinned, yet being justified. Then in Romans 3, 26, there's another that appears to be a contradictory statement that Paul describes God as the just and the justifier. I'm going to ask you a lot of questions during this message because I want you to just think about it. I'm not asking you to raise your hand. Raise your hand or, or, uh, or respond in any way. I just want you to think. So I'm going to ask you some questions. How can God be just and at the same time be the justifier? That appears to be a contradictory statement. In the dictionary, the definition for justify is to be vindicated or to be justly treated. But how can God justly treat the wicked who deserve death and at the same time vindicate them? which means that they don't receive what they deserve. How can he do that at the same time? This is the problem that needs to be addressed within the Godhead. We can't figure it out. We have no solution for it. Because if God is just, he cannot vindicate the wicked unless there is a legal basis for it. Look again at Romans 3, verses 22 to 25. There is no distinct, distinction, for, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift of his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith 
This was a demonst to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. Why would God need to just demonstrate his righteousness? Because God looked on as being unjust. Look at Abraham. Look at all the Old Testament saints. God counted them righteous. Was there a legal basis for it? God counted Abraham righteous because he believed God. God told him that he would have descendants as the sands of the sea and the stars in the sky. And he believed God. God told him to sacrifice his son. He believed that God would raise him up because he believed God's promise. If he, if he killed his son. See, God's not locked in time like we are. God's not working on a timeline. There was that legal basis for Abraham and all the Old Testament saints, the same as it is for us. Because the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was known to God before the foundation of the world. And it was on the basis of Christ's found of sacrifice for sin that he was able to count Abraham and all the Old Testament saints as righteous and forgive their sin. Here, in the, here we talk about a, the, a propitiation in his blood through faith. The reference to blood, of course, is the reference to Christ's death on the cross, where his blood was shed. Let's enumerate now what is being referred to here. There are four things that are revealed. All have sinned. All who have sinned have been justified, may be justified. All who have sinned may be justified. They can be justified by the gift of God's grace. This is made possible through the propitiation by Christ's blood. But let's look in the dictionary and find out what the word propitiation means. It means to turn away judgment by satisfying its demands. To appease an offended person. If there is an offended person whose just demands need to be satisfied, who is it? Of course, it's God. It is his judgment that need to be addressed. Who is going to turn away God's wrath and satisfy his judgment? Christ turned him away. Christ turned away God's wrath and satisfied his judgment by offering his blood as a propitiation for sin to satisfy those righteous demands. To really understand this, let me ask you another question. For whom did Christ die? Some would say he died for the world. Some would say he died for sinners. Some may say he died for me. 
And all would be true since we benefit from his death. But it is we that make the but it is not we that make the cross necessary. It is God's holy and justice disposition that makes the cross necessary. Jesus died for God. Because God's righteousness, wrath, and judgment demanded an atonement. Some of you may have Bibles that use the word atonement in place of uh, propitiation. That's a good word. But it doesn't capture the meaning of satisfying certain demands. And so I chose a translation that uses the word propitiation. We don't demand the cross. People would be satisfied with an agreement that says, as long as you're sorry for your sin, confess and repent, you can be forgiven. In fact, that's the philosophy of a lot of belief systems that don't base their beliefs on, on the Word of God. And since most people are more concerned with their felt needs and their plight in the world rather than their theological need and their plight before God, a holy and just God, they would be satisfied with some sort of social arrangement that brings about forgiveness without the necessity of the cross. But that is not possible because of our natural position is that we are under the judgment of God, guilty, deserving God's wrath and judgment, and helpless to do anything to please God. These are the three things we always make very, very clear in the foundational teaching to our tribal folks that they are guilty before God. I remember uh, talking about sin and asking uh, the believers, uh, I mean, asking the uh, tribal folks what they considered sin in their worldview and in their culture, and they gave a lot of things. And, and I said, and uh, uh, later on, I said, well, those kind of line up with what we have in, in the, the Word of God that He has given to us. And he says, and, and, and God's going to punish us for those sins. And one old man said to me, why is God going to punish us for our sin? If I steal my neighbor's pig, I didn't steal God's pig. It was then I realized that they don't see themselves accountable to God. To them, there was a creator God who lived up in the sky and he smoked his pipe and he made the, made the clouds but he really didn't have any effect. He didn't affect himself in the affairs of life. They didn't have any accountability. That's the first thing, that they're guilty. And that took a while. And that they deserve God's wrath. And that they were absolutely helpless. You know, if people don't understand that they deserve the wrath of God, they'll never understand grace. 
Because grace says you're getting something other than what you deserve. And if you didn't deserve it, you don't need grace. So the demand for the cross came from within God himself. Since God is just, it is impossible for there not to be a legal basis for forgiving sin. In the Old Testament, Exodus 23, 7. I will not acquit the guilty. Proverbs 17, 15. The Lord says, it says, the Lord detests acquitting the guilty. The idea that we can do what we want to do and be sorry and can be acquitted, God detests that. If God could just forgive sin because he is a loving God, the cross would be unnecessary, and the death of his son would be an extremely unnecessary gesture if it was not for the fact that it fully satisfied the just wrath of God. God is just, and justice demands a penalty. Something had to happen to make the just one, in verse 26, the justifier of the ungodly with any, without any violation to his justice. Someone had to propitiate his justice and turn away his wrath. And there are two options. You and I, suffer the consequences of our own sinful actions through death and eternal punishment and separated from the life of God. That's one option. Or a sinless human being offers himself as a substitute for those who are sinful. This is what happened at the cross. This is why Jesus had to become a man the representative of you and I, but sinless, standing between the judgment of God and the sinfulness of man, absorbing the wrath of God in himself. Many people label Christianity as being too exclusive and Christian as being somewhat arrogant because we contend that there is only one way to God. However, their argument is really not with us, it's with Jesus, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. John writes in 1 John 1, chapter 2, verse 2, and here we have that word propitiation again. Christ himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I say Christianity is the most inclusive religion. It includes everybody that will believe. 
that will see themselves as guilty, deserving God's wrath, and, a, and come to an appreciation of the grace of God. John makes a similar statement in where the word propitiation again is used in, verse, in 1 John 4.10, where he explains how God's love was demonstrated by providing the means by which his righteous judgments against sin could be satisfied. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know, all this kind of teaching about deserving God's wrath is rather controversial to those people that believe that or like the idea of or don't like the idea of God being angry at all. They only want to believe in a God who is love, who is too kind and merciful to send anyone to hell, especially one who is trying his best to do what's right. And that's what my dermatologist said to me just recently. He said, well, that's my philosophy. God doesn't really care. God is a God of love, but any demonstration of his love towards sinful humanity cannot sacrifice the other attributes of his character, holiness and justice. Oh yeah, I remember what I said to my dermatologist now. I didn't say God doesn't really care. I said, but how good is good enough? He said, yeah, didn't think about that. The heart of what Paul and John are saying is, if in God's justice he is not permitted to acquit the guilty just because he wants to, then the only grounds on which we can be acquitted is if Jesus takes the consequences of our sin in order that we may never experience the wrath of God. And as a result, you and I can be acquitted. Romans 4, 5 tells us that the ungodly can be justified. It says, but to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. You know, we hear a lot about faith. He's a man of faith, or you have to have faith, brother. We don't hear much about what the object of that faith is, and sometimes you get the idea that faith is the object of faith. I can have great faith in thin ice and walk out on the ice and fall through. And if somebody is standing on the shore, he's not going to say, you should have had more faith, brother. 
There was nothing wrong with my faith. Was, the problem was with the ice. It was the object. There are two things in the character of God that make the cross necessary. God's justice and God's mercy. But these two things are incompatible. Justice gives people what they deserve. Mercy is not giving people what they deserve. How can you reconcile those two things? So it is impossible to be just and merciful at the same time. We can't apply mercy and justice at the same, to the same person for the same crime. Say, for example, I get caught speeding. And I was speeding 30 miles over the speed limit. And I understand if you're that far over the speed limit, you've got to stand before the judge. So I stand before the judge and he says, are you guilty? What, how do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? I say, guilty. He can do one of two things. He can be merciful and say, well, you're an old man. And I said, yeah, and I, I spent a lot of time in the Philippines. You might think, well, if you spend a lot of time in the Philippines and you survive traffic in Manila, you must be a pretty good driver. And he can show me mercy and say, well, okay, well, you're, you're a nice person. Well, I'll just, uh, just don't do it again. But if he's just, he has to levy the, the fine. And he's not going to show mercy when you're 30 miles over the speed limit. It's going to be a big fine. So he says, your fine is $300, and that includes court costs. I th he said, you have $300? I said, no. But I have a friend who saw me go into the court, and he was wondering what was going on. And he's a rich friend. I don't have too many like that. And he comes up, and he hears what's going on. He says, I'll pay it. Pulls out his checkbook, writes out a check for, to the court, writes in the memo line, fence of Bob Ambrosius. He gives it to the court. And by the intervention of a third party, the just demands of the court were satisfied. And in the same way, Jesus' death became justice for our sin, allowing God to extend his mercy to forgive and reconcile us to himself.
It was the intervention of a third party that satisfied the justice of the court, and it was the intervention of, of Christ on my behalf that satisfied God's justice. And if that's what I'm trusting in, I know I'm saved. But I'd like to address a, a phenomena that's quite common among those who that attend traditional evangelical churches, and that's the assurance of their salvation. I myself struggled with that for years, thinking that I was saved because of what I did. When I was a young kid in, in uh, grammar school, we would go to Sunday school, and they had... You all know what flannel graph is? That's a non-electronic PowerPoint. <laughs> and on the flannel graph, the teacher would put a heart up there and, and put snakes and stones and nasty things in there and, and said, that's your heart. Now, you need to ask Jesus to come in your heart, take out all your, remove your sin. Well, that's pretty graphic picture. You talk, Jesus is going to take all the bad things out of my life, and so that means I'm going to be better. So I asked Jesus to come in my heart. I woke up the next morning, I was the same rotten kid I always was. And Judy would probably say, still are. And when my expectations were not met, and that, or uh, I struggle with the, the other, not, oh, that's when it started. And I prayed a prayer of acceptance in church, and, and I went forward in a meeting, giving my life to Christ. And as a result, I had all those expect, expectations of, that I would be a better person, because it was all a subjective thing. I thought it was supposed to come out of me so that now I was going to be better. And I bet I'm talking to some here that felt the same way. When those expectations were not met, I thought maybe it didn't take. Maybe I wasn't sincere. Maybe, you know, I used to read every track. And some track said, here, there's three things you have to do. Some track says there's four things you have. I came a track, crossed a track, there were seven things that you did. And I said, this is what I've been looking for. Even one time when I was about 17 years old while uh, on a music staff at uh, a Bible conference up in New York State, one of the speakers ended his message by saying, if you don't know when you were saved, you're not saved. I thought, oh, I hadn't heard that one before. So when he prayed the prayer and said, follow after me, I followed after him, and, and then I immediately wrote it in my Bible. The date. I lost the Bible. <laughs> but I, later on, I was able to debunk that idea. 
from 2 Timothy 1.12. For this reason, I also suffer those things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. It doesn't say when. I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. I finally concluded that the basis for my salvation is what happened 2,000 years ago when Christ paid the penalty for my sin, the one in whom I was trusting. If you ask most Christians here in America how they know they saved, most of them will tell you what they did. They asked Jesus in their heart. They went forward in a meeting. They raised their hand. They accepted. They prayed a prayer of acceptance. But if you ask a Kalanguya person how he knows he's saved, his answer will focus on what Christ had done. In 1997, we had to leave our tribe because of the peace and order issues. And uh, there, the New People's Army was very active at that time. And they were coming into our village and, and trying to intimidate our, our tribal folks, wanting them to join them in their quest to overthrow the government or destabilize the government. They tried to get them to realize how unsatisfied they should be in this country of the Philippines. Well, they don't mind missionaries being in tribal stations, but what they really don't like is that we're doing medical work. They don't, they don't really care what, what we teach them about God and stuff, but they don't want us doing medical work. So they told us that it'd be better if we left for a period of time. And we always thought if they, our presence there would put them in danger, probably it would be a good idea for us to pull out. He said, but you need to, they, they told me, you need to take all your stuff with you. I said, I'm not taking all this stuff with, it, with me. I said, you line up outside the house and I'll, we'll just send it out of the house. We'll call the airplane and we'll get it, and we'll leave. He said, because when they come back, they're going to go through your house. They're going to steal your radio. They're going to... Uh, you know, single sideband radio so you can contact the airplane. They're going to take all this stuff. You, you, I, we, we agreed that we should take the single sideband radio with us. But our house was empty when we left. And then they said, uh, you know, since you're out there in the lowlands, we're, we've got an outreach ministry uh, right near there. And he said, you can continue to help us there in that outreach ministry where people have been exposed to other religions. And they're asking us questions that we don't know the answers to. He said, if you come and help us, maybe you can, uh, you know, uh, answer some of their questions. So uh, I showed up and I said, okay, your turn, you teach. So I, of course, was teaching from the Old Testament. I was teaching how man was guilty before God, how man deserved nothing but God's wrath and judgment. I was tell, talking about 
the fact that we were absolutely helpless to do anything to please God. And one fellow came, and, and then I told him what Christ did to pay the penalty for a sin to satisfy God. But one fellow still, when I asked for questions, he said, you know, I like these things that you're saying. He said, but, he said, when I was a pagan, I, um, I looked at what the witch doctor was doing, and he said, that didn't satisfy me. He said, and then I, I went to town, and I saw the church there, and I thought I'd go there for a while, the Roman Catholic Church, and he said, and I looked around me, and I saw all their idols, and he said, why should I try trade my idols for their idols? He said, that didn't satisfy me. And then he said, I went to the Iglesia de Cristo, and he said, the first thing I found out there was that they didn't even believe that Jesus was God. He says, at least I learned that from the Roman Catholic Church. And then he said, Jehovah's Witnesses got a hold of me, and they gave me a Bible, and they started underlining stuff and told me that this is what I needed to teach to my... They, they were excited that I was a tribal person, that I could infiltrate the, uh, you know, the, the tribal area with their doctrine. He said, so I got home and I started reading that Bible and I said, I've read it all. I didn't read just what they underlined. And he said, what they were underlining didn't make sense according to what else I was reading. And he said, that didn't satisfy me. What if now I decide to follow your, what you're saying and that doesn't satisfy me? I said, hang on. Let's just back up a minute. He said, when I told you that you were guilty and you deserving nothing but God's wrath and judgment and that, and that you absolutely helpless to do anything to please God and that you stood under the wrath of God's judgment and you're wanting to be satisfied? I said, who needs to be satisfied? God needed to be satisfied. And what Christ did on your behalf satisfied God so that you don't have to pay the penalty. And I saw this guy's eyes, and I believe I saw, for the first time I saw a guy believe right before my eyes. Vicente became a solid believer. He came to every workshop that we had, and he started teaching in his village. And uh, he actually was one of our main leaders among the, the fellowship of churches. And he was invited one time to go to a pastor's conference, and he was the only, he was the only um, tribal person I was invited to go to that conference. All the other fellows were from the lowlands who had been exposed to uh, Western methods of evangelism. And the speaker of the conference said, now I want each one of you to give a brief testimony uh, before we start the meeting. And so being on the, in his mind, 
on the low social run, he said, well, I'll be last. Everybody got up and gave their testimony. Vicente's had his opportunity to give his testimony. He says, I'm, I've been listening to these testimonies, and I listened to what you all did. And you all said that I received Jesus, or I accepted Jesus as my Savior. I did this. He says, I didn't accept Jesus. I didn't do any of those things that you were talking about. He said, when I heard the things that the missionary told me, that I was guilty before God, deserving God's wrath and judgment, and absolutely helpless, I was like garbage at the side of the road. And all I was waiting for is a truck to come to take me to the dump. But when I understood that what Jesus did to pay the penalty for my sin and satisfy God, and that's what I'm trusting in, I understood that God accepted me. In Colossians chapter 2, and those of you who attended the Bible study on Colossians, forgive me for, wow. Hmm. It gives a graphic picture of what Christ's death on the cross accomplished, forensically. You know what forensics are? They're irrefutable evidence. They're not somebody who is an emotional witness of a particular situation, but their fingerprints, blood samples, crime scene evidence, they're objective. And this is what accomplished forensically for our forgiveness and justification. It says, when we were dead in our trespasses and sin and uncircumcision of our flesh, he made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgression, which reminds me of something someone else said while I was a young person. He said, when you're saved, all your sins are forgiven, but now you have to confess. What does this say? Having forgiven all our transgressions. Having canceled out the certificate of debt that consisted of decrees against us, which were hostile to us. He had taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. It was a Roman custom that when someone was crucified, they nailed a placard to the cross stating the offense for which the person was being ex executed. You know what it said on the placard they nailed to the cross. It said, Jesus, King of the Jews. It is what the people who were present at the execution, it's what they saw. But what God saw was your sin and my sin. That Christ was paying for. 
The picture we have here is of total objectivity. What God has done in Christ that we might believe and have eternal life. That the record of heaven, the record in heaven of my sin for which I am guilty, deserving punishment, has been expunged. You know, I hope this completely switches, changes the image that you have in your mind. It's not sin in my heart. It's sin on the record that has been expunged. Totally objective. Why? Because Jesus, who had no sin of his own, intervened as my substitute, was taking my sin as if he were me, and I was declared righteous as he is righteous. For God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the assurance that we can get from your word by knowing that the cross satisfied you. And Father, we just hope and pray that if there are folks here who have been struggling with their assurance of salvation that some of these things that this would clear up as it has done for me these things that bind us to free us to understand that you have been satisfied and that your justice is no longer standing against us as the basis for our punishment but Christ took it all we thank you for that realization and we pray that you would help each one of us to apply it in our daily lives as we move forward with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To close out the service this morning, um, a little verse of scripture. I was, I was thinking about what Bob was saying uh, about the friend who paid the, the, the debt. 30 miles over the speed limit. But you're standing before the judge and you're guilty. And, you know, you owe, you owe the debt. But somebody, a friend, comes and pays that debt. And what, what's on record, as you said, is paid in full. You walk free. We walk free. Isn't that exactly what Christ has done? And, you know, Jesus said that uh, this is what a friend is. He says... For one thing, he says, there's a new commandment that I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he says, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. What a friend we do have in Jesus. And um, that just came to mind. Um, right before the service, I had forgotten to come up with a song to close with and me and Sharon were talking and we just came up with this song I think I think is is a great song we haven't done it in a long time didn't even have it in our database back here but most of you will remember it um, 
but um, let's just start singing it. I think most of you all know it. So let's, Jesus is all the world to me. He's our friend. Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without Him I would fall. When I am sad. Too. You're supposed to use the rail. <laughs> You're making the rest of us look bad. 81. Okay. Pardon me. Yeah. Well, what'd you think? You know, we know Bob is a friend. We know the work he's done for most of his life as a missionary, uh, translating, creating a written language, and then translating the Word of God into that language. And I can just imagine how excited you are for March and to finally see it in print. Let's all go over there. <laughs> but there's something that we've learned today also about Bob. He's a theologian, and he's a good one. I don't think you'll ever hear a more clear presentation of the issues of justification and righteousness and imputation and propitiation, satisfaction of God concerning our sin. And if you are here today and you say, well, you know, I've never ever heard that before. It's, it's a great day for you to hear that because that's, that's the gospel of grace. And thank you so much for coming. And you were enjoying that water so much, I'm not sure it was water. Can I, can I taste it? <coughs> Whew. That is some kind of hooch. 
Did they make that in the Philippines? <laughs> We've had a great day. Thank you for sharing it uh, with us today. Um, just as we leave, uh, pray for the continued healing and recovery of Nancy Baines, who had a, a new uh, knee uh, added to, to her identity. She's had so many things done that we say she's not the woman we used to know. Uh, Jackie Hansen, she had uh, a, a reverse shoulder substitute. Uh, they installed a, a new shoulder, but like my wife Glenda, they had to reverse it and put the ball where the socket goes and, and the socket where the ball goes because uh, without the rotator cuff, they learned that it, it holds, up, holds up better, it stays tighter. But uh, they're home, they're recovering. Joy Knotts had uh, an incredible eye procedure where they put a stent inside her eye and substituted a, a lens and she's feeling great and uh, she sees Bill and she's uh, wondering, is he having plastic surgery done? You know, what, what's... And then Jim Franklin, he had to have uh, another surgery to clean out the infection but they did that, and he's home. He's chomping at the bit to be back in the fellowship. You pray for all of these people. And a reminder that our small groups meet tonight and Tuesday night. And also, um, a Tuesday, uh, Tuesday, the Joy Club will have a pizza, a pizza, popcorn, and a pick picture show. And what's the name of it? I keep forgetting. Though none go with me. You got that, uh, Harlan? All right. I, he said he wasn't coming if it was an X-rated movie. and It's not. It's a good movie. But we'll do that uh, Tuesday. All right. Well, let's stand and we'll have our benediction together. <clears throat> Dear Father, thank you so much for the blessing, uh, blessings that we've enjoyed today. Uh, it's, it's a blessing to be with fellow believers and to be able just to sing praise to your name. Thank you, Lord, for Ron and his leadership and our musical praise, uh, but also to hear the word of God taught. Thank you, Father, for Bob and for all you've put into his mind, for all the work that he's done so that the people in the Philippines can do what we have the privilege of doing, opening our Bible and reading in our own language what you have said. Uh, thank you that uh, today has been a day when we could honor you, but also learn from you and feed upon the, the wealth and the depth of your word. May we all leave with that assurance that the object of our faith is not in what we have to do or have done. Our faith, the object is Christ and what he did on the cross. Thank you for loving us that much. Let this week be a great week of serving you and uh, having chances to impact the lives of others. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're dismissed. Thank you.